This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Dust by Screaming Trees. I just want to hear him say. If you stripped those keyboard stuff away, I don't know what would have happened. Gotta get away, gotta go, get away, gotta go. I'm fine with listening to them, but I don't know that I'm necessarily in love with them. I found myself drawn to those songs. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me for episode 109... Once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, yeah. we, are, we are knee-deep into the third season, Dig Me Out, and we're with a, a, another, we've got another listener suggestion, a requested review. Requested, requested review. Very cool. Very cool indeed. This one comes to us from Eric Peterson, a listener of the show for quite some time from what i remember and he suggested that we check out the screaming trees and their i guess you'd say their swan song their last album dust came out in uh 1996 i believe so jay i'm gonna guess you were familiar with the screaming trees before we did this episode that's uh you know just a general um awareness i'd heard the whatever couple of songs that were on the radio but and obviously i know mark mark lanigan from uh, queens of the stone age right and were you familiar with any of mark lanigan's solo material uh i want to say i listened to the record that came out within the last couple years a little bit okay but not the 90s stuff no he was at the same time See, now, I had no idea he was putting out those solo albums in the 90s. And I didn't really discover his solo material until he did the, you know, like you mentioned, the, the, the Queens of the Stone Age album, Songs for the Deaf. And then he started working with uh, Greg Dooley, first on the Twilight Singers, second album, uh, Blackberry Bell. And they started. then they did that collaboration together, the Gutter Twins album. Right. And I sort of started going backwards and discovering his... You know, solo material and that he had worked with uh, various other artists that are appearing on their records and he's kind of a uh, he's kind of a collaborator plays with a band called the Soul Savers he does work with uh, Isabel Campbell and uh, they've done a couple albums together Queens of Stone Age we mentioned and the Greg Dooley stuff and he's a he's a busy dude I think our our, our belief that he's in a, a mountain cabin somewhere in the Pacific Northwest with a old typewriter and a bottle of whiskey and a shotgun typing out lyrics is <laughs> probably inaccurate. I think uh, I think he's a little bit busier than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a lifer. Like you, I was only really familiar with, I'd say, the album before this, which is Sweet Oblivion, thanks to the big radio single, uh, Nearly Lost You. Mm-hmm. mostly do the single sound i think it was on the single soundtrack and then I, I remember this album coming out but i don't really remember anything beyond the first single which was um all that i know so or all i know not even that the name of the song right all i know yeah. uh i have a i have a weird confession to make ever since that song came out and you know you know the melody of that song he's like that's like that's that's the melody for some reason I don't know why this is when I hear that melody 
you know that uh, there's like that um, kids song. I don't even know the name of the song where he, he sings uh, where the the lyric is uh, Jimmy Crack Cornet. I don't care. That's yeah. what I hear every time I hear that song. <laughs> and it, and when I listen to that song, that's stuck in my head for like it's Mark Lanigan singing that for like an hour afterwards. And I can't get it out of my skull. And I have no idea why I can I relate the two, other than the, the, the melodies are slightly similar. Yeah, there's a lot of not a lot. There's several things about that song that make me think of other things and so I, I know where you're coming from. It sounds very familiar, but not because I've heard the song many times. If anybody can uh tell me the origins of that particular lyric, uh Jimmy Crack Corn and I don't care, I'd appreciate it because it's driving me. Uh, insane. Oh, I've heard that story. Uh, shit. I can't remember. I have, I have heard the explanation of what that means. Okay, it's good. out there. Well, we should probably uh, do what we do right now, and that's the history of the band. History of the band. So, Screaming Trees formed in Ellsberg, Washington. In 1985, by Mark Lanigan on vocals, Gary Lee Connor on guitar, his brother Van Connor on bass, and Mark Pickerel on drums. In the summer of 95, uh, excuse me, summer of 85, they recorded a demo tape called Other Worlds with Steve Fisk. You might know from uh, Pigeon Head and producing multiple bands in the Northwest. Rele- uh, it was released on a local label, Velvetone Records, and then it was re-released in 1988 by SST. Their first album, Clairvoyance, came out on Velvetone in January of 1986. It was followed up with a release on SST, Even If and Especially When, in March of 1987. Their third album, Invisible Lantern, came out on SST on January of 1988. And then their fourth album, Buzz Factory, came out in October of 1989 on SST, and that was produced by the one and only Jack and Dino. They left SST and released an EP in 1990 on Sub Pop before signing to Epic Records. Shortly thereafter, Mark Lanigan released his first solo album, The Winding Sheet, which was on Sub Pop in May of 1990, and then in January of 1991, they released Uncle Anesthesia on Epic, their fifth release, fifth album, and that was produced by Chris Cornell of a band called Soundgarden. Uh, Barrett Martin replaced Mark Pickerel on drums, who left to form the band Truly. And in March of 92, they released their sixth album, Sweet Oblivion, on Epic. That was produced by Don Fleming. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, Nearly Lost, you appeared on the single soundtrack. Uh, Lanigan's second solo album, Whiskey for the Holy Ghost, was released on Sub Pop in January of 94. And then the final Screaming Trees album, Dust, was released on Epic in June of 1986. The band toured for two years on the album with former Caius guitarist Josh Holm on uh, guitar would later go on to form Queens of the Stone Age. The band then went on hiatus. Lanigan released his solo, his third solo album, Scraps at Midnight, on Sub Pop in June of 1998. The following year, Lanigan released a covers album, I'll Take Care of You, on Sub Pop in September of 1999. The band returned to the studio in 1990 to record some demos, 
and shop them around to a new label. They played a show at Seattle's Experience Music Project in 2000 and then officially broke up. Eleven years later, those demos were finally released in April of 2011, last words, the final recordings. In the 2000s, Lanigan has gone on to release three more solo albums. He's per- performed in Queens of the Stone Age and on the Desert Sessions. He's collaborated with Uncle, the UK trip-hop group, uh, Greg Dooley and the Twilight Singers and Gutter Twins, as I mentioned. He's performed with former Bell and Sebastian member Isabel Cannibal on uh, three albums and then two albums with the Soul Savers. So like I said, Mark Lanigan, busy guy. Probably has, a, has an old Palm Pilot that he uses to keep track of all that. I imagine he's he's got a he's got a pretty packed schedule. Uh, Barrett Martin has toured with Home Pilot. Home Pilot, yes. Didn't they make? I think it, he was more of a, um, a handspring guy. Oh, you think so? Just a little bit counterculture, you know. Gotcha. Anyway. So Barrett Martin has gone on a tour with Stone Temple Pilots and REM, as well as playing with Queens of the Stone Age. And the Connor Brothers have both played in uh, separate bands and then worked together in other bands. And that is the history of the band. If you would like to suggest a band for review like Mr. Eric Peterson did, visit the request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Jay, we got some Facebook feedback, and guess who we got it from? I don't know. Who? I'm making a guess. Eric Peterson, the man who suggested this. Oh. He said, since this was my request, I want to ask, is this album a requiem for grunge and the Seattle scene? That's question number one. Question number two, is this like The Birds' Sweetheart of the Rodeo, a move towards roots rock that wasn't embraced at the time? And then his third question, lastly, was this a fitting end to The Screaming Trees? I say yes to all of those and think that this was the last Seattle first wave of grunge album that mattered. Uh, and then we got some some chiming in from uh, Mr. David Gorgos. Eric, look at you. I nearly lost you there. All I know is these were their dying days. Ah, very funny. Very funny, David. Dirty Gert. Um, so he brings up some questions, Jay, in his uh, feedback. Number one, is this the is this the requiem? Is this the funeral procession for the, for the grunge scene? Is this like the bird, sweetheart of the radio, a... Rodeo, a move towards Roots Rock that was not embraced, and was this a fitting end? We're going to get to all those questions, Jay. Get wow. I didn't know there would be an exam. Yeah, there is an exam in this in this portion of the show. Ooh, okay. Let me so get limber up your mind. I'll be here. And okay. Take a deep breath. I'm enjoying it. a Sam Adams winter lager right now, actually. I want to make some. I want to. I want to point out some notes about this because this is an interesting record to, to point out some notes about. So Benmont Tench, I believe is how you pronounce his name, who has played with literally everybody, but is best known for the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He played organ, electric piano, mellotron, and piano on this record. I think that that's going to be uh, kind of important. Gary Lee Connor is credited with sitar. Okay. And then lastly, George Draculius produced the album. Now, Draculius is best known for being the protege of Rick Rubin. He worked with the Jayhawks. He produced the first uh, Black Crows album, worked with a lot of bands. And the this is how I figured out how to pronounce his last name, Jay, Draculius, because 
in the Beastie Boys uh, song B-Boy Booyah Bass, which is on the album Paul's Boutique, they actually name-check George Draculius, and this is how they do it. The lyric goes, Sat across from my man reading El Dario, riding on the train down from El Barrio, down from the El Barrio, went from the station to Orange Julius, I bought a hot dog from who? George Draculius. How else would you pronounce that name? I don't know. It's Greek. It could be <laughs> anything. I know. I'm looking at it. It's pretty straightforward. Well, Dracula- that you. That's cool. Draculius. The L-I-A-S makes me confu- can, can, can cause confusion. You just wanted to show, show off your flow. I did want to show off my flow. It was it was more Sal Governale than uh, John Lieberman. So <laughs> it I'm was. Sure people, people will appreciate that reference. So, Jay, let's get to the yeah. album. We've been we've been building it up. Oh, Christ. Eric Eric dropped a lot of questions on us. We need to answer them during the course of this review. So, he deserves dust. answers. Dust. Is this album Dust in the Wind or is it uh Dusty Old Sock? I, I don't know. What do you think <laughs> of this record, Jay? What was his first question? His first question was, is, is this a requiem for the grunge Seattle scene? Like, was this the, was this basically saying grunge is over in a way? Well, that's tough to say. I don't consider this album particularly grungy, um, which I think he makes in the second point is that it starts to, um, it feels more roots rocky to me than grungy. Um, there are some components, uh, maybe guitar tones, maybe some of the rhythms, Mm-hmm. on here that 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 hearken maybe to the to the stereotypical grunge sound but i think they elevate the sound out of that through the additional instrumentation particularly the keyboards which are a huge part of this record uh, probably one of my favorite parts of the record is just all the various mellotron and piano and electric piano and organ and all the stuff going on there i think it really adds to the sound of the band and complements um the vocal a lot yeah. So it's tough for me to say this is somehow, I guess, maybe a, a bookend to grunge, considering it's not all that grungy. I think it definitely starts, like we said, goes in that roots rock direction. Not many other bands really sort of progressed out of that, of grunge into something else. It sort of either mm-hmm. broke up or, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of like maybe Soundgarden sort of progressed into something else, but. I don't know. I, I sort of think grunge was dead even before this. I mean, really, in terms of the initial, what we think of as the sound, I think it sort of blew up in the early 90s and was long gone by 96. I think at this point you have a lot of bands like Screaming Trees and Soundgarden and various others trying to figure out what what's next. You know, what's the how do they branch out themselves individually and take another step? And I think this is Screaming Trees trying to do that. Oh, what was the second question? Uh, the second question was, is this like the Birds' sweetheart of the rodeo, a move towards Roots Rock that wasn't embraced at the time? I do. I just want to back up for one sec. The last uh, 90s Soundgarden album came out the same year. Uh, came out in 96. Yeah. Uh, so it, you know, it was around the same time. This came out in June, so it was one month apart. That these two, re- the final records by these two big bands. I don't consider that record grungy here, do you? 
No, and I think that that's the kind of the point is that by 96, the grunge bands had stopped making grunge records. Yeah. You know, the grunge records are Bad Motorfinger and um, Facelift and Dirt. And I, I guess, you know, uh, some of the earlier Soundgarden, although, I, not Soundgarden, but some of the early Screaming Trees records aren't really even grunge. They're much more in the vein of, I don't know if you're familiar with those, those early ones, but they're much more in the vein of, um, uh, kind of like a weird combination of garage, 60s garage rock and psychedelic mm-hmm. sounds combined with like an 80s punk aesthetic. Like they're really not grungy when I think of the grunge that incorporated like a more metal and sludgy sound. Uh, it's much more in the experimental and, you know, th- this record probably harkens back it's probably more of a refined version of what they were doing earlier and probably benefits because Mark Lennon is a much better singer by this point. Whereas mm-hmm. Sweet Oblivion, which was much more in the vein of, you know, those, those early to mid nineties brunch records. But as far as the second question, uh, bird, sweetheart of the rodeo, are you even familiar with that record? Have you listened to the bird, sweetheart of the I rodeo? Know. Have you listened to any of the birds besides like Mr. Tambourine man. And so you want to be a rock and roll star? I'm familiar with those songs. I'm not familiar. I can't listen to that. As as someone who has dived into the birds category, I'll say there was definitely a, a part or, or a switch in their sound where they sort of embraced country music. They went from being, you know, like a folk group in the in the vein of, I guess you'd say, like a Crosby, Stills, Nash, that sort of band, to mm-hmm. embracing country. And sort of in a, in a different sound of country, like a southwestern, which is where you know Grant Parsons ends up going and forming like the Flying Burrito Brothers. It's a it's a it's different when you think of country of even of that time. It's it's a much more uh, it's 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 the birth of alternative country in a lot of ways. What would lead directly to like the early Wilco Sunvolt Jayhawks, that kind of stuff. Right. But it, it's. I, you know, that's more of a stylistic change. Was this a stylistic change? I guess he's asking. I don't know. I, to me, this seems more like a refinement, like you said. Like, you know, they've sort of been together a long time and they've had, kind of got a formula down and then they start adding mm-hmm. um, some new instruments to it, some new sounds. Uh, you know, I there's probably a conscious uh, decision here to, with a song like All I Know, um, to try to write another hit. Telephone line. 
take it as some like ambitious move to you know another a new whole new sound or a whole new direction or anything like that it just sounds like a refinement to me of the band you know that that existed to this point um you know overall i i think i wanted to like this record a lot more than i ended up liking it not to say that it's bad anyway but um i just found probably a you know a good chunk of the material to, it just came across as kind of average to me and that's mm-hmm. um considering the the, the land again and just how powerful and distinct and um you know I, I kind of important his his voices um i was kind of surprised that, that on this record uh they don't He's not really he's not really finding himself or finding his spot all the time in the songs. Um, a song like "All I Know," it's 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 really familiar in a lot of ways and um, kind of remind me of that Cracker song, "Low" a little bit and sort of it's just like middle of the roady kind of rooty with snarly guitars kind of thing that we heard a lot of like generically in the '90s and then vocally. It's a good example of a song where in the first track too, Halo of Ashes, where he's really following the melody of another instrument. And I don't think that that necessarily puts his voice in the best place. Just, just from the standpoint of like, I found myself uh, with a song like "Look at You" or even "Dying Days," where uh, the other instruments got out of his way and gave him mm-hmm. space. I found myself drawn to those songs way more than some of the others, where it was, um, you know, him building on top of another melody and then adding more you know, backup vocals in the chorus that you know on the same melody and everybody's sort of in the same area. I wasn't quite buying that that was a good direction for them. Um, I was way more into the stuff where it was a little bit more sparse. Um, it stayed out of his way. So look at you, dying days. Um, I think Sworn and Broken is a great song. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, and that harpsichord solo that sort of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah and there's a really brilliant um, trans- two transitions in that song. It kind of starts off as an acoustic kind of mm-hmm. um, kind of song. You figure it might stay in that direction. And then they added drums, and they go, oh, it's building. And then they do like a, um, it kind of does like a little vocal hook and they do like a little guitar run and you figure like, okay, this is where the song's going to come in. And they hit like one chord that's, you know, that's still the same sort of quieter. And then on the second chord, they kick in the distortion. It just sort of catches you. It just kind of messes with your expectations a little bit, which is pretty cool. And 
then they kick it in and the song kind of takes on this whole premise of you know the melody and everything they establish but they they take it you know in a whole new intense direction for the rest of the song when it's sitting in again and it feels like the end is near senses insane and long watching the seconds passing by come jam pretty straightforward up tempo it's probably the fastest song on here and i liked gospel plow i thought that was at least um them sort of exploring some different sounds instruments um song a little bit more epic it's like six minutes long but that was probably the most successful um at, at, at pushing the boundaries for them but uh you know that's kind of where i'm at the other songs you know it, i didn't dislike them i just found them like i said kind of average what did you think? Lanigan is one of the few guys where I actually want to sing him, hear him sing slower songs rather than up-tempo songs because I think mm-hmm. his voice works better the slower the song. When he's trying to sing fast, like on Halo of Ashes, I the song is fine. It kind of mm-hmm. reminded me of like an early Our Lady Peace song. Like you said, he's sort of just like matching what's going on in the rest of the song. And it's got that that song and and Dime Western, which I, I like Dime Western, but they ha- and I actually I like Halo Vashes, but they're that Eastern vibe that they have going on with the sitar in the first song and just the use of that particular scale. I don't know what I feel like. That's you know I, I realize this came out in '96, but everybody who uses that sort of scale, mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of been done. It's cliched now. Yeah, it kind of feels cliched now. So I was more drawn to, like you, songs like Sworn and Broken, Sworn and Broken, and and Traveler, which had used the Mellotron. Uh, Witness was a cool song. I like Dying Days. Um, Mike McCready actually, a Pearl Jam, plays the guitar solo on that song. 
And then Gospel Plow has that cool, like, book ending with the the two slower acoustic parts at the beginning and end of the song. Mm -hmm. So I'm much more in tune with what he's doing that sounds closer to his solo material, which tends to always be quieter and slower and and more folk and, and blues influenced. Although I think he's kind of created his own genre of taking folk and blues and like twisting them into this weird Seattle grunge influenced version of all that. It's when you listen to the first solo albums, the first couple solo albums, you know, there's definitely like what you consider like traditional music. I'm thinking traditional like 20s and 30s, like that sort of like traditional folk and blues Mm -hmm. stylings, but with his very unique take on it and it's it's i almost want to just refer to it as like that's you know lanigan music like it's just its own thing i feel like there's a little bit on here of that and then there's a little bit of the old screaming trees and they're sort of battling in the songs for for dominance so that when the band wants to rock out he sort of loses his place a little bit but when the, the songs slow down that's where they're you know that's where he's in his comfort zone yeah, it really works for me, and it's the same thing with like that Gutter Twins album. I think that when him and and Dooley are are trading off on the slower songs, that's where their voices work best together. He had one other question that we should address, which is: Was this a fitting end to the Screaming Trees? I would say yeah, because I think that this wraps up everything that they did. Yeah, is it necessarily the the best collection of songs that they wrote? Uh, you know, if you if you look at their greatest hits, I think there's like five songs off this record on their greatest hits, or their best of. I don't know if they have a greatest hits or if it's a best of. Which I there's a distinction between the two. <laughs> I think it's a best of. Yeah, because really greatest hits would be one song or a collection. Yeah, uh, actually, I it's think, referred to. I'm sorry, it's referred to as a, there's one on here referred to as an anthology. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> that's the best way to go. Yeah, Just anthologizing your 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 career. There's definitely a diversity of sounds on this record, and there's definitely some of it harkens back, and some of it is a, a unique take on what they were doing at this particular point. I love the use of all the keyboard stuff. I'm so happy that they brought in Ben Mont Tench. And when you think about it, they brought in some like heavy hitters for this record to bring in Traculius and Tench and uh, Mike McCready's on a song. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, in terms of like, mastering and all that that was all like this this was they were going for it with this record they were not trying to make a small record they were bringing out all the talent they could and and trying to make a big record and like you said all i know is definitely an attempt at a radio single i don't think that there's any doubt about that and it's it's in terms of his vocal delivery when you compare that chorus to nearly lost you nearly lost you he's got some fire in that chorus yeah when he hits all i know in the chorus of that song, it he's not nearly as fired up to sing that. Yeah, the, uh, that whole pre-chorus part is really irritating. The uh, gotta get away, gotta go, get away, gotta... I'm just like, oh, bleh. Like, for him to sing something like that, it just seems like so mailed in. I don't it's know. It's so offspring. And I'm not usually overly critical of things like that, but that was just one of those where... You know, they're sitting around the studio like, oh, let's rewrite Nearly Lost You. We need a hit on this record. Let's, you know, and he's just like kind of 
you could tell Foden it in in terms of his vocal on that one. The the odd thing about uh, Screaming Trees to me is that they're not considered in the same tier as Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. For some reason, even though Mark Lanigan is very respected as a solo artist, in the band format, they kind of get lumped in with not the second tier because they were obviously there, but in terms of, you know, when you mention the grunge bands, they're never, ever up there with the main group of bands. Yeah. And I wonder if it's purely from a single standpoint because they didn't write singles or, you know, I remember reading in the, uh, the Mark Yarn book last year, um, everybody loves our town that, when they put out uh, Sweet Oblivion, they didn't really do a lot of like touring for it, like because Lennon was doing solo stuff, and they had kind of at that point they had been a band to you know for almost like seven or eight years, and they were kind of um, known for being a little reckless and into drugs and some other things. I think that they had like some issues with regard. I think the drummer had left pr- prior to that record, and I think there was already some tensions in the band at that point. So I feel like they were just kind of like a band that missed the, didn't take advantage of what was going on at the time, to be able to fully succeed. Yeah, I know. I also remember. Uh, I don't remember what the time. This is awful to, to have remembered. Do you remember? Uh, their weight being an issue in terms oh. of the image thing yeah as you know there were two guys in the band that were kind of heavy and overall you know they weren't the greatest looking guys in the world i mean they just look like you know i just you know from seattle band i mean it wasn't like that was about but you know we're still in the mid-90s and we're sort of um you know grunge's fashion kind of thing is very much going on so it's even still so uh I think this is about the same time, like uh, a candle box. It's kind of, you know, middle being huge, and they were like, you know, you got you got the whole package from uh, in terms of like they had the grungy sound, but they also look like you know, uh, basically a hair metal band from the from the eighties, and then you got guys like Screaming Trees, which was, you know, at this point videos are still important, and they're trying to write hit songs. I just remember that being mentioned as an issue, reading articles about them at the time and stuff, and. Yeah, you know, it was kind of weird. They they bring that up in the hype documentary, which if people listening haven't seen it, I suggest you seek it out. Uh, it's just called Hype, and they do a lot of interviews with uh, Van Connor, who is the I guess the heavier of the two brothers, and he makes a lot of jokes about his weight and about how he, you know, they had issues with the record label and those sorts of things in terms of their image. Mm-hmm. He's pretty. You know, that was made in, like, 94, 95, I'm guessing, because it was after Big Explosion, after uh, Cobain. I think it, it was out, after. It was, like, 97, 98. Yeah, well, right. it was. It was about the it, it was the fall of 96, I believe, because I saw it while I was at CMJ in New York. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a, one of the free, like, advanced screenings that we got to go see. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, at the time, it was entirely, you know, relevant 
because we're living through a lot of that. So, sure. Um, in terms of where this falls, I guess. Well, I guess we covered that in terms of what, where this, how this fits into the Tumi Trees sort of catalog. Like I mentioned, I think it's a good combination of what they were doing, and then yeah, I don't, I, I, you know, one of the things I did appreciate, but appreciate about the records i felt like the um i I think the playing is good in fact i think the the drums and sort of rhythm section um does a pretty remarkable job of taking you know maybe songwriting at times that isn't you know particularly interesting or dynamic and making it you know kind of be a little bit special so a song like uh even dog days or uh, all I know, which, you know, rhythmically could be kind of plotting or, mm-hmm. you know, fall into some trappings of maybe like, you know, um, just being too, um, just the way you emphasize a rhythm like that, being too stereotypical, maybe like a grunge or, you know, that kind of thing. And they kind of elevate it to where the drums almost have like a, you know, they kind of skip along. They have a little bit of, ener- a little bit more energy to them and, just a little bit more personality to them. And it kind of translates to the overall feel on some of these songs. Um, mm-hmm. It really benefits them. And then, you know, I think the guitar work on this is really good and, it's, and the sounds are really good. And then obviously we've brought up the the addition of the keys and, and how much that brings to the sound of the band. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think it's always a performance thing that's, that's the issue here. I think it comes down to songwriting. you agree with that? Yeah, and I think that they weren't trying to write a single on every song. So sometimes they get a little experimental with the music. And then sometimes it just, like, I'm sure that they were thinking, you know, all I know is a single, but then I think Diane Dave's was also released as a single. But that's a, I think that's a little bit more of interesting of a tune. And I'm just wondering where the, the, the push and pull was between let's get experimental on this track or let's try to, you know, clean up the pop aspect on this track and push for a more of a radio sound, I guess. Sure. I don't know. Because it's more blatant on the previous record than this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you mentioned before, in terms of again for their career, um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's a fit, fitting end in that, you can see that the you don't listen to this record and think, oh, if they would have just pushed this or tried this or went in this direction, you get enough a sense of a sense of them going in different directions and trying different things and a flavor for how that turns out to feel like, okay, now I know. And there's a couple, you know, handful of songs on here that might be them at their best as well. So you get a nice mix of, of them sort of trying new things and either being you know, just dull or um, not very successful. And then you have some other things where, you know, it's it sort of, like I said, just them doing what they do and being comfortable in that. And it, and it, you know, working pretty well on the production is good. So it definitely um, left me feeling like, okay, I, I get, you know, if I listen to this whole band's catalog and end with this record, I get what they're about and, and what they were capable of. And I don't have many questions. Yeah, I guess the only knock is that I sometimes the songs just don't feel as they could have pushed them farther. That's I guess that's the thing. Like they they stick to a 
on a lot of the tunes, a very traditional format. You know, Gospel Plow is one of the few ones where they don't. For the most part, everything is competently played. There are some interesting notes here and there. Like I mentioned, I think the, the Eastern stuff's a little played out by this point, but you know, the addition of the keyboards makes a big difference. If you'd stripped those keyboard stuff away, I don't know what would have happened to this record. I mean, I kind of feel like in a lot of ways it saves the record, adding you know unique little sounds that play off of his vocals here and there. Yeah, and it, it's one of those things when I mentioned about like the the. I sort of focus on the rhythm when describing it. That keyboard, or organ, I should say, uh, and some of the verses helps that too. It kind of propel, it kind of pulls it out of the like mucky, crunchy kind of, you know, downbeat kind of feel, and it elevates it up a little bit, so it kind of almost floats and it has more energy to it. Mm-hmm. Part of that is like the, when you add organ, you know, confidently, you know, a person who knows what they're doing. You know, you kind of get these notes that kind of carry over everything, and um, it definitely elevates. Um, this the law of this record into something a little bit more interesting than it would have been otherwise. So I'm curious to hear how then you rate this record because for me I'm sort of like there are there are songs where I'm I'm fine with listening to them but I don't know that I'm necessarily in love with them. Yeah, so what do you yeah. think? Is it a worthy album, a better EP, or just a decent single? Ooh. Yeah, that that is tough. Um, I'm gonna go with an EP. You know, I got "Look at You, Dying Day," "Sworn and Broken," "Witness," and "Gospel Plow" as the songs that you know I, I think are, are really really good. Uh, I think the other songs are just not up to that par. And I think you know, being fair to the format, uh, I think it would be better if you just took those five songs and put them on an EP and forgot about the others, um, and maybe went and listened to a Mark Lanigan solo record instead. Oof. Yeah, you? I'm really on the I'm on the cusp here. I'm at like seven songs. Because in in the end, I do like the melody of All I Know, um, especially the, as I mentioned, the Jimmy Crack Horn line. And um, I, I like enough of a lot of the other songs that I don't mind listening to them. Eh, it's tough. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going to go with the, the 1970s seven-song album. It's my is my picker, but it's yeah. really on a, one song cut from that, and we're at an EP. So I mean, that's yeah. a really close. Uh, that's a close cut right there. So. And I could have went that way too. I mean, uh, like, like I said, I, I'm probably not gonna one of these songs come up. I'm not gonna hurry up and fast forward and turn it off, and, and I don't find them offensive. I just I guess my expectations were higher, and only half the record really met my expectations, and the other half did not. So. Pretty much, I'll listen to Mark Lanigan sing anything. It's whether or not I want to listen to the rest of the music behind him. Right. Is is enough. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why. Yeah, I, there's moments on here where I'm like, oh, just get out of the way. <laughs> I just want to hear him sing. Like, stop doing the other stuff. Although I don't know there's if like, I'll be able. All kinds of able- tabla and percussion and stuff going on in some of these songs when they get into the Indian influence stuff, and you're like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, I don't need any of that. Just give me a, you know, snarly guitar and Mark Lane again and, you know, a thick drum beat. We're good. Yeah. Well, that is our review of The Screaming Tree's Dust brought to you by Mr. Eric Peterson. We want to thank Eric for suggesting the record. 
And if you would like to suggest a record for us to review, visit the request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. And then, of course, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And don't forget to stop by our, uh, you know, our website, digmeoutpodcast.com. And we've got the uh, comments up for uh, Discuss running there. And, of course, our Facebook and Twitter feeds. Uh, that's it, Jay. We are done with the Screaming Trees. And uh, our, our, our image of Mark Lanigan has been shattered, but we will soldier on. Uh, Woo. Yeah. All right. For Jay, I'm Tim, and we are out. Join us next week for another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.